morning's reading from Scripture comes from Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, meanwhile, Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drunk. Now, There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And for several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. This is the word from the Lord. Well, good morning. As always, it's a great pleasure to be here at Johnson Street 
I've been on the road a lot the last two weeks in lots of places. In fact, I've been in and out of Dallas for meetings three times in the last two weeks alone. But in those meetings and conversations with church leaders and ministers and others, uh, Johnson Street keeps coming up. And uh, they said, you, have you been, you've been going out there? What's that church like? I said, it's a pretty good church. And they said, well, we've been hearing that. We've been hearing that. And uh, I just share that to say... Uh, It's a great joy to be with you and to commend you and continue to encourage you to be praying as as we even as we were led in prayer this morning so well uh, to trust in the Lord and uh, allow for him to lead us forward simply for us to continue to deny ourselves and lean into his work in our lives Um, and just want to encourage you with that that brief word this morning as we gather. Well in the 1960s When I was the size of a second grader, there stood in the city of Tulsa a grand hotel. In fact, I've got an ad from that hotel I want to share with you. Now, this hotel was exceedingly proud of its name. I know this, or I knew it as a second grader because of the size of the letters on top of the hotel. 30 foot tall or more, it seemed to me. It said, Camelot. You laugh. Well, having, having received the benefits of a higher education, having a wonderful teacher in the second grade, Mrs. Scobie, who taught me well, and uh, I had the highest regard for her, she was the fount of all knowledge. She was the bearer of wisdom, the bringer of light. She had taught me phonics, the mystery of vowels, and the reality of consonants. I could pronounce anything as a second grader. I was a card-carrying member of the American Association of Pronunciation Experts. And so with all of the gravity that a seven-year-old could muster, and there are times when seven-year-olds can muster a great deal of gravity, I had offered the definitive pronunciation of this architectural wonder, the Camelot Inn. Well, we think we know... And when we think we know, we can get very determined. That's the case for Saul in our story this morning. Breathing threats and murder, how's that for an opening statement for a story? Saul had learned well uh, from his teachers and his legacy. There was no way to convince him otherwise. This newfound movement of faith and belief in Jesus as the Messiah uh, stood at odds with everything that Saul had come to know and believe. There was no doubt in his mind. He knew it was wrong. He had studied the Torah. He was well-schooled in the tradition. He had a PhD in Jewish studies. No one could tell him what he already did not know. And so this great persecutor of the church goes to the high priest. Did you catch that? He went to the, you know what that means? It means that a Pharisee among the Pharisees went to the arch-rival tradition, the Sadducees who controlled the priesthood and the, gover- the, uh, power, the government of Judea, the Sadducees, and they worked out a deal together on this. This is about as outstanding as a bunch of Democrats working with a group of Republicans for the common good. He, he goes to the chief priest and gets warrants for arrest 
so that he could travel 135 miles north northeast from Jerusalem up to Damascus along the great road, the great, uh, the great uh, uh, north road going from Jerusalem to Damascus that pilgrims would travel to come to Jerusalem. There was word that there were some more of those believers in Jesus, the way up there, and he was going to take care of that problem. But somewhere along that great north road, somewhere outside of Damascus, he was knocked to the ground by a lightning bolt of light. And in that great flash of light, Saul hears the words that alter his understanding and deliver a great and life-changing insight into a whole new reality. Well, in the 1960s, when I was the size of a third grader, one Saturday night, I have to tell you, this was in the days when NBC, I think it was, had Saturday night at the movies, and my mom had prepared what she always did on Saturday night, homemade pizza from those canned boxes of Chef Boardee. Do you remember those, if you're of my age or so? And we had homemade pizza and popcorn, and there on the table was pizza and popcorn, and on the TV for Saturday night at the movies was Richard Harris and Vanessa Redgrave. And it it was wonderful. I sat with shock and amazement as I heard Richard Harris sing about Camelot. (laughs) Camelot, that wonderful place of Camelot. Well, lights went off for me. There was such a place. I was horribly wrong, and I was sent out on a mighty, holy quest to learn of the round table. Throughout my youth, I pursued Sir Thomas Mallory's, the Lamont de Arthur, the T.H. White stories, Once and Future King, and Mary Stewart, who wrote series of, of novels on Arthur. I had been converted to Camelot. Well, so there was Saul. Saul crumpled on the ground, shock and amazement. A voice speaks to him in true biblical fashion. Saul, Saul, the double call. Saul, why do you persecute me? No debate here. Saul knows that something is happening that's uh, the work of the Lord. He just doesn't know which Lord or what Lord. Who are you, Lord? Then comes the climactic declaration. The one thing that Saul deemed to be absolutely impossible is presented to him as undeniably real. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and enter the city and you will be told what to do. <laughs> A lot there in that few, those few statements. First of all, Jesus identifies with those who suffer the ones who've been under the harsh boot and heel of Saul and his persecutions. There's also interesting to note, I think, no expression here in all of this about Saul's psyche, that he's a a sinner that needs to be cleansed, nothing about the awareness of sin or any such thing. It's simply this, Jesus shows up, he commands, and, and Saul follows. 
There's no t- talk about testimony from the Old Testament, no s- declaration of Jesus' ministry or anything else that we often see in, in, in Luke. What we see here is that the great one, Saul, the enemy of the faith, is now helpless. Saul, the one who sees and knows, is now blind and confused. Like a child, he's led into the city, passive, and he waits waiting for three days in the realization that what he was so certain of all, of, of all along is now found to be false. Conversion. Conversion. I think we need to hear this story today, this story of conversion, because we sometimes have a rather limited notion about conversion. I think when we hear the word conversion, we normally think about great conversion stories, like someone who was uh, an alcoholic and then got rid of the bottle, or a philanderer who gave all that up and became celibate, a bad person who becomes a good person, sometime uh, someone who doesn't believe in God who now comes to believe in God. That conversion is somehow or another a word to straighten up and fly right. And we certainly rejoice when all of those things happen, when someone who's drowning in whiskey or their marriage is swirling around one last time in the bottom of the bowl before they disappear, how the Lord reaches in and saves them and suddenly they have peace and joy and life is wonderful and good. I'm all for those things and Luke is too. In fact, my guess is Luke saw that all the time in the first century, but when he wrote the book of Acts, those kind of stories are not the kinds of stories he told. The really vital stories, the really big stories, are the stories when righteous people, virtuous people, good people end up getting the truth about Jesus and it turns their world all upside down. Think about the stories, the conversion stories in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. All of those people, 3,000 souls were baptized on that day. And all of them were cream of the crop Jews who'd come from all over the world to worship God. Or what about the stories of Peter and John in the temple courts in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4? These are not pagans who are having a loud rock concert in back of your house late at night that you want to call the cops on. These are people who are going to the temple day in, day out to pray to God who hear about Jesus and it turns their world upside down. What about the Ethiopian eunuch we looked at last week? Or Lydia, the Jewish businesswoman? On story after story after story in the book of Acts, it is good people, righteous people, people who go to church on Sunday kind of people who have an encounter with Jesus and it turns their world upside down. For Luke, conversion means people coming to see life in a new way. It's not about being bad and becoming good, being mean and now being nice. That happens. It's not really about being saved. It's more like being receiving a calling, a vocation, a way of life that continues to turn us and turn us and turn us until we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, let me give an example of this. Perhaps you know some of the story about John Newton, the guy that wrote, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. The story is often told of him as as a man who uh, was this uh, 
slave trader who then suddenly got Jesus and became a saint. That's not the story at all. As a teenager, he was uh, a sailor. He got pressed into the Navy by the Royal Navy, by the British Navy. I got shipwrecked, ended up being a slave himself to other slaves. I don't know how you, I don't hardly know how to figure that story out. He escapes from that. He uh, has a near-death experience that calls on him to call out to Jesus. He, but he continues in his trade as a sailor, becomes a captain of a sailing vessel, a captain of a slave ship. Uh, he's sort of Christian, kind of. But uh, it's, it's years and years after he gives up sailing and he gives up being a captain for slave shippers. Uh, he finally gets back on land in England, and it's still several more years of study and reflection. He finally goes to se- kind of like seminary, and along the way, it finally comes to him that his life has been claimed by God. It's a slow and steady process, on and on and on. In fact, on the, his tombstone, which you see on the screen behind me, this is the backside of the tombstone. It reads in full. It's kind of hard to get it all. It's up against a wall. But it says, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the gospel which he long labored to destroy. He ministered near 16 years in Olney and 28 years in this church, St. Mary Woolnerth. I tell that story to remind us that the business of being converted is a conversion uh, not from bad to good, but to coming to see Jesus Christ more fully and completely. And in seeing Jesus Christ more fully and completely, we begin to see others as human beings loved and saved by God as well. That conversion is the act of relinquishing ourself and coming to understand God's vision and responding in a self-denying way to God's agenda in our lives. I like the way a literary scholar puts it in working with uh, the stories of Flannery O'Connor, the noted Catholic author, Flannery's are full of wonderful conversion stories. He says, Hawkins says, that conversion occurs when a, when a person is forced by extraordinary circumstances to transcend the self-centered demands of the ego and comes to see another person as real and full. And church, I am saying to us this morning, we all need to have Damascus Road experiences in our lives. I don't know what it will be for you. What will it be that will command your attention, that will wake you up to see what God is inviting us to become? There's a story told about a battleship on the sea in heavy weather and in battle maneuvers and and war maneuvers. The weather is heavy and shortly after sun goes down, the lookout reports to the bridge that there's a light in the distance and it seems to be right straight on course for where they're headed. The captain sends the signalman to send a message and the message is sent from the battleship. Advise you to change your course 20 degrees. Message comes back a moment later and the message says it's advisable for you to change your course 20 degrees. Well, this kind of angers the captain. He sends a message back. 
He says, I'm a captain. I'm ordering you to change your course 20 degrees. And the message comes back and says, I advise you to change your course 20 degrees. I'm a seaman second class. <clears throat> the captain says, send another message. Change your course 20 degrees. I'm a battleship. A few minutes later, a message comes back and says, we advise you to change your course 20 degrees. I'm a lighthouse. (laughs) What will it take for us to wake up and see Jesus? I am convinced, church, that here even now, as we have called on God the Father, as we've remembered Jesus Christ the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus stands in front of each and every one of us now, in this very minute, inviting us to embrace a way of life that is turned toward the other and not toward ourselves. Jesus is the one who says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He is the one who says, blessed are the meek. He is the one who says, blessed are the pure in heart. He is the one who says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you hear his call? Do you hear that call? It's a call that invites us into sacrifice and relinquishment. Now, I know that's not the kind of message we hear today. In politics, in the public square, we're hearing, get it for yourself. Take care of yourself. There's fear and panic and anxiety in every bit of language and uh, news and, and commentary that's out there right now. What would it be like if we would calm ourselves and hear the voice of God speaking in our lives? A life of a calling that says, relinquish and let go. In 1961, in that same period of time I was speaking about earlier, John F. Kennedy came into the presidency and his inaugural address in 61 made this speech that I can almost, I cannot hardly imagine it being a part of our common language today. And I say that with great, great regret. He would say, in the long history of the world, Only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light the country and all who serve it in the glow that that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of humankind. Do you hear that call? That's really a call not to self, but to sacrifice. It's a call to deny ourselves for the sake of another. And that's the call that Saul gets. You remember Saul? You remember Ananias who gets a visit himself? Ananias. And Ananias says, here I am, Lord. Get up. Okay. Go to the street called Straight. I can do that. Go to the house of Judas. Okay. Look for a man of Saul, of Tarsus named Saul. Silence. (laughs) I'm not so sure I want to do that, Lord. Wait a minute. Don't you know who that guy is? Oh, I know who he is, says the Lord. 
I know exactly who he is, and I'm going to have words for him, words not just about conversion, but a call, a vocation, and it will mean suffering and relinquishment for Saul. And so Ananias goes. You see, Saul is not getting a free ride here. It's not a ticket to the big circus in the sky that he gets to sit around and just show up at showtime. What is happening with Saul and his shock and blindness and transformation is preparing him to be a vessel, a tool that holds something, that carries something. He is actually someone who's being called on to suffer for the sake of Jesus. Saul is being carried or called into ministry, into a life that is characterized by devotion and sacrifice. And church, that is the invitation that comes to each one of us. It's a call not for us to get saved so we can go on with our life just as we diddly darn well please. It's a call that invites us into seeing others as Jesus sees them. And living our life, uh, allowing for God to break into our world and call us to attention and invite us into a deeper way of life. It's a kind of call, I would say, that allows for us to see the interruptions of our lives, the breaking in of people into our lives as God's invitation to participate in his ministry in the world. So will our actions, will our words echo with the gospel of Jesus as he continually invites us into that? Or will we, like some second grade boy I used to know, keep on insisting of putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable? What will it be for you? Let me leave you with this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer who speaks about interruptions in the way in which God breaks into our world. He says, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our path, canceling our plans, sending us people with claims and petitions. It's a strange fact, he says, that Christians and even ministers frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think that they are doing God a service in this, but actually they are disclaiming God's crooked yet straight path. I'm inviting you today to reframe your life. I'm inviting you today... to to allow for Jesus to walk into your life and interrupt you. I hope that it doesn't take a blinding light. I hope it doesn't take, um, I hope it doesn't take a lighthouse. And I hope it doesn't take Richard Harris, who can't really sing, to do it for you. I hope that this morning, just by being in this community and in this time and place, will be a place where you hear the voice of Jesus invite you into a deeper life, a calling, a vocation, that your life matters in the kingdom of God and he desires for you to serve him more fully. Will you pray over that this morning, even now, while we stand and sing?